Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Let us pick up where we've been hanging out. We've been hanging out with the matriarchs of uh, Breshid of Genesis, because the, in the third, third of every Torah portion, that's the story. Uh, so we've been hanging out with the matriarchs largely because in the third, third of the Torah reading, the, the third year of the triennial cycle, those are the stories that we get. Those are the texts that we get. So that's where we've been hanging out. We've been talking a little bit about um, these stories from the Mesopotamian matrilocal uh, matrilineal tradition, which preceded the patriarchy, understanding that, of course, the editor is patriarchal. The agenda of these s- stories in the form that we have them is patriarchal, and it was successful, right? Like we're the reworking of these texts, the reworking of that culture was successful. It was a patriarchy, um, and them being able to move around rather than locating with the the mother's family meant that they took over the whole region, right? So in terms of the agenda of patriarchy, it was hugely successful. Um, what we've been trying to do is at least try to read into these stories what the original characters might have been about in terms of it not being a patriarchal agenda, um, that that's been overlaid onto what originally were stories about women who were very active in the cult and were very active in um, the religion of Mesopotamia and and served very important functions, um, often being the daughter or sister of the king. So often the high priestess was royal. Uh, so these were very high positions within the tribe, within the group, within the the you know the cult site. There were many of these cult sites around um, the Fertile Crescent. So we've been trying to appreciate these stories just a little bit anyway on their on their original merit, their original intention, and their their origins in terms of these women and how they would have lived. Even in the early patriarchy, Mesopotamia still had the traditions we've been talking about. That, right, Canaan was a patriarchy, but Mesopotamia, where a lot of these stories come from and the women come from, Haran, right, all these places, they still had the traditions we've been talking about when these, right, when this is set. All right, so it's it's not it's it's this is the transition period um, into the dominance of patriarchy and that system. Okay, so I know it's easy to say, oh yeah, Amy, well you've been reading Savina Tuval, and so you know if you hang out with that stuff, that's how you're going to see everything. Very true. Not going to deny it. It's very true that I've been reading that material, and so I'm very interested and I'm very excited to reclaim that as women as um, men who are allies and also want to understand these stories um, differently than the patriarchal agenda has us understanding them. The war between Rachel and Leah, right? You know, jealousy and and Sarah being, you know, so horrible to Haggai. You know, there's just so many levels at which it's really lovely to reclaim these stories as Jews, as progressive Jews, that they you know didn't always have this layer of um, ickiness to them. So that's one thing. But the other thing is it's easy to, to ignore the rest of the parts of the Bible because we don't go there. We hang out in the five books. Completely my fault. We, we hang out in the five books. And that's okay. That's just, that's just what we do. Um, but I, I've heard you 
many times when you've said, so what goes on in some of those other books, Rabbi? And also this morning, I thought we would look at some of the text. So you don't have to just take my word for it. It's right there in the text. Um, we're going to read the Rebecca narrative, the, I mean, the Rachel narrative here. Um, and then I want to look at some of the ways this story that we're reading this morning shows up in relationship to women being very active in the ritual life of the clan and the tribe, particularly in the home from other parts of our Bible. Not the five books, but other parts of our Bible. So you don't have to just take my word for it. So we're going to look at Genesis 31. And this is the um, point at which Jacob has decided to leave Lavan's household there is lots of conversation in the literature about what's, what, what exactly is Jacob's relationship vis-a-vis Lavan. So is he given the status of an adopted son because Lavan had no heirs? If so, then we know Lavan had sons later. So did it get revised that Jacob's no longer an heir and so he wants out of there? What we know is that Rebecca, they, they start the names with the same letter. Too much. I can't keep up. So does Rachel, do Rachel and Leah, they agree to leave. Jacob consults them. They agree to leave. So it's important that he consults them. He doesn't just drag them behind him, right? He, he says, I'm concerned about your, Lavan swindling me, us, out of your inheritance. The, and, and the women say, he swindled us out of our bride price. That should have been our inheritance for us and then who they decide of their children is going to inherit that. That is not, that is not dependent on Jacob, their inheritance, it would seem. So they have their own status within the clan. So they decide that they are going to indeed leave. So he put his children and wives on camels. That's how you travel. Uh, in these stories, anyway, you travel uh, on camel and drove off all his livestock and all the wealth that he had amassed. Remember, he's a he's a uh, shepherd, right? Remember, he genetically monkeys with everything so that he gets more sheep and more wealth um, than uh, than Lavan had imagined he would have. He, remember, he gets the speckled and spotted ones and. All right, so um, everything he'd acquired in Padana, Ram to go to his father, Yitzchak in Canaan. So they're leaving Mesopotamia to go to Canaan. All right, that's important. That's very important. The women are leaving their, their matrilocal, matrilineal place of origin and leaving to go to their husband's father their husband's father's patriarchal clan. Some people want to read that as a big part of what's about to happen. Uh, Meanwhile, Lavan had gone to shear his sheep. So that means, remember, that's a three-day business. Remember, Judah goes to do that, and that's where Tamar encounters him and seduces him. So this is a big deal. Taking all your sheep to the sheep shearer was a huge deal every year. So he's gone. Lavan is gone. They wait till he's not going to be home and they leave. And what are we told? 
Now, notice the translation. What does the translation at the end of verse 19 say she took? 19 in English says she took her father's household idols. That is not the word that's used in Hebrew. The word in Hebrew is very clear. Trafim. Trafim were a very, and we're going to look at it, were a very specific tool used in the home, often by women, also by men, used for divination. These are not idols. Idols had a much different purpose. The idol would have been activated by the priest to now be a representation of the god or goddess. And once that happens, once the priest activates that pesel, that idol, it would never be talked about as a thing anymore. Right? It, that would be... It, it, yeah, it's animated now, and so it would never be just called a, a thing. An idol. It wouldn't be called an idol by them. Right? So, but anyway, so this is not idols. Idol has a different language in Hebrew. So does a, a marker that represents the goddess or the Asherah, the tree, which is matseva. That's a matseva. An idol would be a pesel. We're getting there. All right. So, Vayignov Yaakov at Lev Lavan. So what, she steals the trafim. What what happens next? We're told that Yaakov stole the heart of Lavan in not telling him that he was leaving. Okay? We could have a field day with that. And he fled with all that he had. Soon he was across the Euphrates and heading toward the hill country of Gilead, heading north, the hill country. On the third day, Lavan was told that Jacob had fled, okay? So he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days. So now it's a week and a half since they left and catches up with him in the hill country of Gilead. But God appeared to Lavan, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, beware of attempting anything with Jacob, good or bad, meaning stay out of it. Right, hands off. Lavan overtook Yaakov. Yaakov had pitched his tent on the height. What? That's what you're going to do. You're going to be in a strategic spot where you can see everything coming on the high place. And Lavan with his kinsmen encamped in the hill country of Gilead. So now they're going to have to parlay. So Lavan comes to Yaakov to say, "What did you mean by keeping me in the, me in the dark?" and carrying off my daughters like captives of the sword. So Lavan is mischaracterizing Rachel and Leah to a serious extent. He knows these women, right? He, he knows. I mean, these are the women that buy sex from their husband and tell him where he's sleeping. So it's like they, they, they are the boss in the house. He knows this. This is clearly a calculated, right? caricaturization of what Yaakov has done. Why did you flee in secrecy and mislead me and not tell me, which is probably the real issue? I would have sent you off with festive music, with timbrel and with lyre, because you know how honest I am and supportive. You did not even let me kiss my sons and daughters goodbye. It was a foolish thing for you to do. 
I have it in my power to do you harm. But the God of your ancestors said to me last night, beware of attempting anything. So if it were for your God talking to me, let me tell you, mister, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. Okay? Very well. You had to leave because you were longing for your father's house. But why steal? What does he call them? My gods. Those are not Trophim. Trophim are not the household gods. This is the topic. I know y'all don't believe me, but it's true. This is the topic of very hot debate in the archaeological and biblical exegesis world. This is the topic of a lot of discussion. Do, does the author think Trophim are gods or idols? One article I read uh, by a biblical scholar said that no, this is an author who is trying to explain why in the North Country, Rachel is the mother of the North. Who did Rachel give birth to? Do we remember? Uh, Yosef. Thank you. Joseph. And who else? Benjamin. She dies giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin and Joseph. Who were Joseph's? Who are the people that are represented? We don't have a tribe of Joseph in Israel. Who do we have? Ephraim and Manasseh. We have Joseph's sons. Those are the northern tribes. Rachel is the matriarch of the northern tribes of Israel. So some scholars want to argue that author knows those are not idols or gods, but is suggesting that the idiots here didn't know that, right? That, that this is a fakey, fakey, how the Trophim got to the north and how the northern people don't even know what they're talking about and considered them gods and idols. And that's why those two cult sites in the north that were competition for the temple in the south, this is a story about how they got to be the ridiculous thing that they are. I don't think I buy it at all. What is but, the what is the Hebrew word for gods that he uses? Uh, Elo, it's it's Elohim, like gods. Elohai, my gods. So it so the um so that's what he uses. So that's what the author puts in Lavan's mouth, which is incorrect. So you have to try to figure out why is the author purposefully incorrect about <coughs> what Lavan is calling them. Okay. Yes. Trophim is also plural, right? So presumably it's more than one thing we're talking about. Whatever the things are, it's more than one. It's plural. Okay. So he uses the term, my God, why did you steal my gods? So we, we don't have an answer to why the author purposefully mistranslates, right, gods and idols, we, although they, they don't use idols, they use trophim. Okay, so come down. I thought you would take my your daughters by force. I was afraid. But now Yaakov doesn't know. This is very interesting. Yaakov doesn't know what Rebe- what Rachel has done. So clearly... Rachel does not feel the need to consult Yaakov with what she does. 
with Lavan's Trafim. So we're going to talk about that. Um, she, she's took them. He doesn't know that. He's pissed off that Laban is even suggesting such a thing. Cause who would do that? Who would take someone's Trafim? You don't do that. That's, that's, you're signing your own death warrant. Like, Jacob's like, I'm not an idiot. So, all right, Mr. Busy, you want to come in here charging me with all kinds of horrible things? Fine. You know what? Search, search everything. And the person with whom you find them is dead. He's just signed Rachel's death warrant. But they don't know who they're messing with. So Lavan went into Yaakov's tent and Leah's tent and the tents of the two maidservants, but he didn't find them. Leaving Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Dun, 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 dun. Rachel, meanwhile, had taken the idols and placed them in the camel cushion and sat on them. And Lavan is rummaging through the tent without finding them. So now if you're writing this as a director of a film, the scene is he is in a rage because he's now embarrassed himself by accusing them of stealing them. He can't find them. He's now in his youngest daughter's tent, tearing, and you know his men are with him, and they're tearing the place apart. Don't think tent like a pup tent like you're camping. This is a desert sheikh. Yaakov is wealthy. It's a desert sheikh. Think Bedouin tents that we've eaten under in Israel. Huge, wealthy, amazing tent. They're tearing the place apart. And she's sitting there on them. And so the only thing left, obviously, is for them to search where she's sitting. So if they say, all right, up, Missy, we need to look through your camel stuff, then, right, she said to her father, let my Lord take it amiss, do not let my Lord take it amiss that I cannot rise before you, for the period of women is upon me. Thus he searched, but could not find the Trophim. Smart lady. So what does she do? It's so multi-layered here, what she does. She sits on the Trophim, and she claims that she's menstruating. So now put those things together, right? Menstrual blood and Trophim. So maybe in her mind, he would be so horrified by the idea that while menstruating, she's sitting on the truff that could not possibly be because as crazy as Rachel is, as headstrong as she is, she's not stupid. She would never dare to sit on the truffim menstruating. So the truffim must not be there. <laughs> Rather than maybe she's not menstruating, right? But, the, but menstrual blood is to this day is so freaky for men. They're so flipped out by it that it works. And he doesn't even question. It's like, okay, let me get the heck out of here. Right? That is definitely still going on. You know, you know how many women in the ancient world and in the modern world have had their period three times in a month? <laughs> Jacob became incensed and took up his... Now Jacob's mad. You've searched everywhere. They're not here. So he's angry. And he says to Lavan, what is my crime? What is my guilt that you should pursue me? Right? These are my wives. These are my children. I did not take your stupid Trophim. 
Leave me alone. Go already. You rummage through all my things. What have you found of all your household objects? Set it here before my kinsmen and yours and let them decide between us. Show me what you found. Show me the money. Show me the evidence. These 20 years, (laughs) Jacob has had it, right? These 20 years I've spent in your service, your ewes and she-goats never miscarried, nor did I feast on rams from your flock. I only fed my family from my portion of the animals. I've worked my tail off for you. You've done very well under me, father-in-law, right? That which was torn by beasts I never brought to you, meaning... That's a loss for Jacob, but he never went to Levon to say, you need to replace it. I myself made good the loss. You exacted it of me, whether snatched by day or snatched by night. So if one of Levon's animals was killed on Jacob's watch, Jacob made up the loss. Often scorching heat ravaged me by day and frost by night and sleep fled from my eyes, right? The life of a shepherd is not an easy life. Of the 20 years that I spent in your household, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages time and again. Had not the God of my ancestor, the God of Abraham, and the awe of Isaac been with me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God took notice of my plight and the toil of my hands, and God gave me judgment last night. Then Lavan spoke up and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. Yet what can I do now about my daughter, my daughters or the children they have born? He recognizes he has no control. They've left. They're, they're a week out. He, they're not coming back. So this is, you know, the last shreds of, right, outraged, insulted dignity, right, speaking. Come then, let us make a pact, you and I, that there may be a witness between you and me. So Lavan is suggesting he stole everything from him, so now we should make a pact. It's, just, it's a negotiating tactic. You, you feign insult, right, at how badly you've been treated so that you can have the other person come to the table. Thereupon Jacob took a stone and set it up as a matseva, as a pillar, as a sacred marker. They went and gathered stones and they had a meal because that's what you do. And uh, he names it Gal-Ed, Yaakov does. Lavan calls it something else. This mound is a witness between you and me this day. That is why it was named Gal-Ed. Okay, y'all have seen those coins that are in cut in half? and people wear one half of the pendant, this is where it comes from. So people think it's so romantic. It's from the Bible. Okay, this is where it comes from, people. Um, and it was called mitzpah. They call them mitzpah coins, you know, mitzpah pendants, because he said, may God watch between you and me when we are out of sight of one another. Meaning... Not some romantic notion that I'm longing for you when you're away from me. May God protect us so we can see each other again. This is God is watching. Even when we're not dealing with each other directly, God's watching. Right? So we made a deal. And when we're not together, like nobody can hold each other accountable. But may God watch over what's going on while we're not 
together. So whenever I see one of those, I have to chuckle. You know, the, with what? Chutzpah. That's exactly right. All right. Was it normal in those times to have a meal to seal, yes. by, by, yes. by stones? Yes. To seal a pact? Not, not necessarily by stones, but if you're making it a ritual act, you would have had the ritual cutting of the covenant and making of the deal and whatever. By the matzeva, it would have been a ritual meal. It would have been a feast. Which is what you ended up with some of the sacrifices at a later point. Yes. Yes, because you're inviting God to the meal, right? You're trying to bring God close, so you're going to serve a meal, and you're inviting God to participate. God gets the reach, God gets the smoke and the smell. We get the food. Because, of course, at this point, Yahweh doesn't need food. But once upon a time, the God, you would have given the gods a portion because you had to feed the gods. So by the time we get true Yahwism, Yahweh doesn't need it, but likes the smell. So, Trafim. We've got Pesel, idol, Trafim. We have uh, Maseva, a... Uh, commemorative stone that would have been a sacred representation. We have found these all over Israel in Israelite cult sites, people. Israelite. There was a matzeva that would have represented the goddess or the god, an asherah, right, uh, an upright wooden whatever. Later it was made out of other things other than wood that represented the sacred tree that was asherah. These are found all over Israel. In many places, it is obvious that there is syncretistic worship happening. We believe it never really ended, and that's why the Deuteronomist is so upset. It never ended. We've touched on this briefly before, but I'm going to show you some texts. Syncretistic worship was not a problem in the ancient world. You only have a problem with syncretistic worship when your God needs to supplant all the other gods in the region because they're competition. The church had to figure out how to have Christian iconography and mythology and everything supplant pagan stories about those same places. Right? Jesus supposedly died here. Jesus did this here. Jesus did that there. Those were all pagan holy sites. You know this from learning with me. You know that David did the same thing. All the J's now, the R's, the J's. Judah, right? What was the place they chose in Judah to have the be the big hoo-ha religious site of the new Israelite religion? Jerusalem. Why? Because it had been the sacred place of the Jebusites. You don't pick a place that isn't holy. Dafka, you pick the holy place of the folks you're trying to supplant. And you build your temple to Yahweh there. You build your temple to Zeus on the holy spot of the people who were there before you. Yes? So syncretistic worship is not a problem. You can worship Yahweh and Baal Unless you want monotheism, now you have a problem with syncretistic worship. That's what happens. Eventually, Yahwist religion becomes monotheism. It is very late. 
We think of it as early. It is not early. It is late that it becomes pure monotheism, meaning denying that there, there even are other gods. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad is not a statement of monotheism. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad means yud Hey vav Hey is your God, Israel. And that's the only one you're allowed to worship. It doesn't mean there aren't others. yud Hey vav Hey Echad, yud Hey vav Hey singularly is yours, Israel. You're not entitled to Asherah. You don't get to have Baal. Sorry. It doesn't mean there isn't a Baal. It means yud Hey vav Hey is your Eloheinu, is our God. Echad. Singularly. Okay. So, uh, so syncretistic worship happens all over ancient Israel throughout the occupation of Israel by Israelites. So let's, let's just, let's check it out. All right. Let's go to our text sheet, please, Rachel Feldman, because I promised these people some proof. Because a lot of times I just talk and they believe me. Okay. So here's the English of Judges. Sorry, Pam. I had it side by side on my sheet. Um, you'll, when Bert posts it, you'll see the text side by side, but I can't, we can't get the Hebrew to do it on, uh, Rachel's end. Okay. They said, this is from Judges, behold, there is a yearly feast to Yudhe in Shiloh, a cult site in Israel, a feast for Yudhe not in Judah, not at the temple. That's very late. That's the Deuteronomist. Before then, in the period of the judges, before there were kings, you had a festival to yud vav in Shiloh. Of course you did. Shiloh was a cult site, which is on the north side of Beit El, on the east side of the highway that goes from Beit El to Shechem, and on the south of Livona. Therefore, they commanded the children of Benjamin, northern tribe, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards and see, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and catch you every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Binyamin. So there are, there's a Chag, there's festival to Yudhevave at a cult site, and women are participating in the religious rituals. This Coming out to dance is not just like, yay, like, get down, boogie. This is ritual dancing that would have been part of the Chag. Women had an active role in participating in local celebrations, and in this case, to Yudhe So we tend to think of the, the Jerusalem priesthood, male, men, dynasty, Aaron, blah, 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 but that is not True, <laughs> until a very specific period. Were most of the cults God-oriented, different God-oriented? Yes, they would have been originally different cult sites sacred to different deities. Eventually, it all they all become cult sites to yud as yud becomes the dominant god in the region. But they continue to worship Asherah. So let's look at the next, the next text from, so here we have women dancing as participating from Shiloh in the Chag, in the festival to yud Now we're going to go to Judges 17. There was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Michayahu, and he said to his mother, he stole some silver. He admits that he took it. 
his mother said, Blessed be thou of yud hey vav hey my son. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver to yud hey vav hey from my hand for my son to make a carved and molten idol. Now, therefore, I will restore it to thee. And when he had given back the money to his mother, his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the founder, meaning the the, the person foundry that works with metal, and gave them to the founder who made of it a carved and molten idol. And they were in the house of Michayahu, the, the idol. But look what it says in the Hebrew. Sorry, Pam. Um, she, what did she have made? Aphod utrafim. She had them make an aphod and trafim. That gets translated as idols. It's not. It's trafim. What's an aphod? Do you remember what the aphod is? We know this word. Huh. The priests in Jerusalem, the priest, the high priest has an aphod. And it, the aphod is a covering. What is, what is the, the priest wear as an item of divination in the temple? The Orim and Tumim. The Orim and Tumim. It stays a part of the cult, the southern cult tradition of the Urim and Tumim becomes a part of the priestly garb. So does the aphod remain a part of the priestly garb that we see here in the north, but becomes, of course, the only kosher priest. The, only the kosher priest can wear it, which becomes in, in the temple in Jerusalem, where uh, eventually worship is centralized. But we are looking at stuff before that. Trafim. So an Israelite woman has silver sent to the foundry for yud hey vav hey, dedicates it to yud hey vav hey, and has a masecha and trafim and an aphod made. Are these the same shields that identify the tribes? No. This is, Th- a, this is a ritual... These are ritual items. And the man, Micha, had a shrine and made an aphod and trafim and consecrated one of his sons to become, I changed the translation, I don't like this translation, consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. No. To become its priest the, the the hymn is an it here. In Hebrew, it's the same thing. I don't To be his priest doesn't make any sense. You're talking about a shrine and an aphod, and you consecrate one of your sons to be its priest, the shrine's priest, which is, right? So, um, which is called bait, a house for the gods, okay? So this is proof that people who are Yahwists are making trafim and aphods and and consecrating a priest at a local shrine. So Trophim are here. Okay? He also deposed his... Oh, here, look at 1 Kings. We're talking about deposing his mother Ma'acha from what? From the rank of Gvira. So Gvira, we don't know exactly what that is because it's what she's called, but we don't know what exactly that is. It's clearly an important position because he's deposing her from that position. Was it a ritual position? Is she a priestess? We don't know, but he's deposing his mother from the rank of 
Gvira, Gibor in Hebrew is hero. You know, so she's some kind of big shot position because she had made an abominable thing for the goddess Asherah. Yeah? Asa cut down her abominable thing and burnt it in the Wadi Kidron. Clearly, very high-ranking Israelite woman who is worshiping Asherah. But, I mean, it was just, now he doesn't like it because he's a pure Yahwist and he's going to, you know, he's not happy with that. But it's clear that it's happening and it's happening at very, very high levels. Two kings, he abolished the shrines and smashed the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until that time, the Israelites had been offering sacrifices to it and called it Nehushtan. So in two kings, we're getting the story of the king who's abolishing all of this. You can't abolish it if it's not happening, <laughs> right? Two kings, 21, the sculptured image of Asherah that he had made, he placed in the house concerning which Yudhe had said to David and his son Solomon, right? This is where I choose to place my name, meaning the temple. There is having removed from the temple the sculptured image of Asherah. It was there in the temple. 2 Kings 23, he brought out the image of Asherah from the house of yud vav So if we can assume Asherah is being worshipped, we can assume women are involved in that worship. I just don't see how we wouldn't assume that. 2 Kings 23, he tore down the cubicles of the Kadeshim. We're not going to try to unpack that. It's too too complex. In the house of yud vav at the place where the women wove coverings for Asherah, probably for the, the statue of Asherah. They wove garments to dress. Look at the big festivals where they bring out the image of the Virgin Mary, right, and clothe her in beautiful garments and carry her through the city center. That's exactly what we're talking about here. In the house of yud vav do we have any examples of the sculptures of Asherah in any of the museums? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All over. All over ancient Israel. Often, of course, large hips, large buttocks, um, large breasts, large belly, um, often with the, the hands and arms under the breasts. Uh, Ezekiel 8.14, next he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of yud and there sat the women bewailing Tammuz. Tammuz is a Babylonian goddess. So all over the place, in our own texts, we have evidence that there's the worship of Asherah happening at the same time, right alongside the, the worship of Yahweh. If you go to Kuntilat Adrud on the, on one of the cave walls, there is a, uh, an inscription to yud vav and his Asherah. To yud vav Tzvaot and his Asherah. It was the it was God's consort. It was Yudhe Vavhe's consort. The counterpart to the male patriarchal god of war um, is Asherah, and women were not giving her up. Men worshipped her too, but we, you know, <laughs> women were not giving it up. And here we have them bewailing Tammuz. 
Okay, so I've given you some quotes from the author of this article that I found amazing. Uh, look at quote number 11, text number 11. The Bible also gives witness to a multiplicity of smaller shrines on hilltops and within villages throughout the land. Before the temple was constructed, these shrines, like the pilgrimage sanctuaries at Shiloh, Bethel, Gilgal, and elsewhere, had raised no concerns. David, for example, goes to Bethlehem, his family's village, to participate in a familial festival of sacrifice. Given what is known about women worshiping at Shiloh, it is likely that in Bethlehem, too, the women and the family participated alongside the men. In the days of the kings, as Israel's population grew, the number of small local places of worship would have increased accordingly. Israel's long-established social structure, which emphasized the Shevet, the tribe, the Mishpacha, which was the clan, and the residential kin group or extended family, meant that the traditional pre-monarchical modes of worship flourished throughout the monarchy. The oft-repeated Deuteronomistic condemnation of local places of worship over which the Jerusalem priesthood had no control and perhaps in reality made no effort to control until the Deuteronomistic reforms of Isaiah and Hezekiah and a century later of Josiah attest to their widespread popularity. There's no reason to assume pre-monarchic stuff didn't continue through the monarchy. And then you get the Deuteronomist yelling and screaming that, thank God, Hezekiah, the righteous, comes along and gets rid of all this garbage, as does Josiah. Clearly, it meant the, the Jerusalem priesthood couldn't control it. And maybe, this author is suggesting, didn't bother to until it became a royal edict that they'd better get their butts in line, right? You have a religious reform by these, you know, Bible thumpers, you know, saying get rid of all that other stuff. It's Satanism. It's, you know, heresy. So what point did that change? Would what and did change? women And did women get excluded? So how did, how, did, how did we end up with a mechitza is really my question. <laughs> so, well, that's a different issue. A mechitza oh, okay, is a different okay. issue. So I, I, I was using that symbolically. Sort of. So mechitza is one issue, but how did we come to male-dominated religious practice? Right, and the idea that women were excluded, or were they? So they were excluded from the Jerusalem priesthood. So that was already an agenda happening in the South, right? Um but it suggests that, you know, the, the archaeological evidence suggests, and this author is lifting that up, that the other stuff didn't stop just because what we hear about is the only place God places God's name is the temple in Jerusalem, says who? Oh, right, the people who want centralized worship in Jerusalem, right? But the rest of the country doesn't care. You, dr you drive from Jerusalem to the north. That's a long drive now. I mean, long-ish. That's a five-hour drive. But imagine in the ancient world, what kind of authority was the Jerusalem priesthood going to have over the, you know, the women dancing at Shiloh for the festival to yod heh Very little. It's the first time I've read, and maybe they didn't care. That was curious to me. It was like maybe, maybe until Josiah and Hezekiah start to get upset about it, maybe the Jerusalem priesthood didn't care. All right. Look at, I just want you to see Jeremiah 17. We're not going to listen to you, they say to Jeremiah. On the contrary, we'll do everything that we have vowed to make offerings to the queen of heaven. 
and to pour libations to her as we used to do. We and our ancestors, our kings and our officials in the town of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For when we had plenty to eat and we were well off and we suffered no misfortune back then. But ever since we stopped making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring libations to her, we have lacked everything. Yes? All right. And when we make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour libations to her, it is without our husband's approval that we have made cakes in her likeness and poured libations to her. They're putting a question mark here, meaning the women are saying, you don't think our husbands knew? You don't think they liked them a piece of queen of heaven pie? You think it was happening right under their noses and they didn't know? So if you don't put a question mark there, maybe they're saying they didn't know, but I kind of agree with the place of placing of a question mark. That's like, what you think? You think we did this without our husband's permission in our own homes? Come on. Domestic religion was in particular the responsibility of women who more fully occupied the four room house, which is what the Israelite uh, smallest family unit would have been. It was both their place of residence and their primary workplace where they managed the storage of stuff and the making of stuff. What this means is that each ritual act that took place within the home transformed that home, or at least some part of it, into sacred space. So I think the other thing that we forget is that when we talk about women being involved in ritual and women being involved involved in religious rites, Rachel felt entitled to the trophim. She would have been the one ruling, not ruling, uh, the one orchestrating ritual in the home, the trophim were an absolute essential part of that. If we look at the Mesopotamian uh, priestess structure, it is the youngest daughter that inherits. It is ultimogenitor, not primogenitor. Rachel, as the youngest daughter, would have been entitled to the trophim, When you traveled in the ancient world and you left your home, you took the familial trafim with you. God forbid you're going into some God-forsaken other religion's realm. You take your trafim for protection, for divination, for all of the ritual that you have to do at home. You can't get them somewhere in Canaan with their crazy religion. Is that like taking your Shabbat candlesticks? It's like taking your Shabbat candlesticks. That's exactly what it is. People fled. How many of our great-grandmothers, great-great-great-grandmothers fled with only their Shabbos candlesticks? It's all they could take. But that would have been what was most precious to them, right? But in your family, it might have been the Bible, the family Bible. right? What, whatever it is, we know how important those those home-based, family-based religious objects were and are. That's what's happening with Rachel and the Trafim. I've given you evidence that the Trafim are all over the place. She, it was not unusual at all that you would go to a festival for Yudhei Vavhei and at home you would also have religious rites that included Trafim, that included Asherah, that included a lot of things one would have done in perfect harmony with how one is worshiping Yodhei Buffet until it's decided only Yodhei Buffet and only the temple in Jerusalem, only the male priests and women become now adjunct 
and are excluded from participating in the cult as far as we know. Remember the, the bronze laver was made from the mirrors of the women. There is, there's, there's stuff about them being at the entrance doing stuff. So possibly they were supportive. They had supportive roles in the cult, but not certainly the primary ones. Okay. Um, one Samuel, don't worry about it. You can, you can look this stuff up. It's there for you. It's evidence. Michal, David's wife, takes Trafim and lays them on the bed when Saul comes to kill David, right? So it's not important what she does with them. It's important that she had them. (laughs) Michal, the wife of David, so she was the queen in Jerusalem, has Trafim. Huh? Saul's daughter has Trafim. She uses them in this case to disguise, you know, like David sleeping in the bed so that he doesn't, you know, no one knows he's gone. But the point is she has them. They are obviously a part of women's lives. Women had access to them. I'm not saying exclusively, but very clearly, women and Trafim were a thing. Um, and that Rachel takes them from Lavan's house when she's going to be going to, you know, Canaan is not unusual. It's absolutely to be expected if we accept that this was absolutely commonplace. Other forms of worship. Uh, other forms of ritual, and that women were uh, very involved in that. So you have this that Bert will link you to, my source sheet on Safaria, um, because I really did want to bring proof from our own Bible, from other places, that it's not just Savina Tuval. Like, it's not just scholars, you know, imagining and looking at Mesopotamia and laying that on our text. It's there in our texts that says syncretistic worship was happening. Women were very involved in that, and we just read right over it. We just we just accept the Deuteronomistic, whatever it is, history, and we accept that as normative, and we accept that as at what at, that would, would have been a really long time, and it wasn't. It was a very brief religious revival, very brief, and it didn't work really. It's true. It, no, it was not a peaceful transition to full monotheism. I don't think so. Um, just look at the fact that it didn't last, right? Jeroboam, you know, like uh, you have cult sites in the north that are competing with the south and they become their own polity. Israel becomes its own polity against Judah. The, the joint project of the north and the south lasted 100 years. That's it. That's it. 100 years. Half the time this country has been around is how long Israel was a united monarchy, north and south. It did not work. It didn't last. And what do you have? What is the competing cult at Bethel and 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 at Tel Dan in the north? You have a cult site built with the golden bulls, the golden calf at each one, because that never stopped either. We like to think Moshe comes down, destroys it, and it's done, (laughs) right? Mm -mm. when Israel separates and they have their competing cult sites, they have a bull at the entrance to each one of those cult sites. It never went away. That desire, that relationship, that iconography does not go away from ancient Israel ever. Okay. So I wanted you to see uh, that Rachel is not... uh, an idolater, which the rabbis can't, God forbid, have her be. 
right? So what are the, how do the rabbis explain it? God forbid she's using trafim, God forbid. So what did she take the trafim for then? If she's a righteous worshiper of Yudhei Vavhei, why did she take the trafim? Any guesses what the rabbis did? To stop her father from using them? See, Pam studied the legit interpretation. She was saving her father from using them. She was saving her father from idolatry. Except the only problem with that is, then wouldn't you have gotten rid of them? She did not get rid of them because she's using them. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.